This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, really interested to talk to this next guest because I feel like we talk so much about vaccines from a medical perspective, but there's a social Mm -hmm. aspect to this as well. And really interested to get into it with Monica Shockspana. She is medical anthropologist and senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And of course, that is closely tied with the Bloomberg School of Public Health. That's supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the owner of this radio station. Monica, really nice to have you with Carol and myself. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. So I'm really fascinated by this because we spend a lot of time on this program talking to a lot of your colleagues at Johns Hopkins, talking to a lot of medical experts, and I feel like I know more than I ever thought I would about some of the medical aspects. But this report, the public's role in COVID-19 vaccination that your team has put together, uh, is really about the social side of this and the public's acceptance. Tell us what you found. Well, the, the big headline here is that it's one thing to have a clinically successful vaccine, and we want that. We want safe and effective vaccines. But it's another thing to have vaccines that are socially acceptable, that people are willing to take, uh, that they have confidence in, um, and feel that they're easy to get, and thus they're going to make uh, an effort to get them. So our group was interested in understanding what are those reasons that would make someone opt out of COVID-19 vaccination or inadvertently miss out on COVID-19 vaccination. So that was the focus of the group. And what did you find out, Monica? Well, what we find out is there's no one explanation as to why people are expressing hesitancy around vaccines in general and then more specifically about COVID-19 vaccination. For some people, the issue is safety. They're worried that there's a, there's an, uh, a sense of urgency and a rush to produce a vaccine and perhaps inadvertently along the way, safety is going to fall by the wayside. So for some people, it's a safety concern. For others, such as members of the African-American community, they have encountered a history where they, there has been active abuse of, of, of them and their trust. Um, and uh, there's uh, instances in American history where men and women of African-American descent have been experimented on, and they don't want to see themselves playing a guinea pig role for what is, would be a novel vaccine. And for some people, the, the issue is going to be cost. Is this something I can afford? Is, can I get to it without having to take a, a long bus ride and potentially be exposed to COVID-19? Um, do I have to have a, a, a caretaker for my kids so I can get away to get to the clinic? So then for them, it's an issue of convenience. And Monica, it's interesting. You know, I hear you talking about this, and I feel like we have gone through, and maybe you're still going through, 
a very similar conversation when it comes to masks. You know, you had sort of this, you know, sort of people dividing on on sides for political reasons. This yeah. is in some ways just as important, maybe even more important. And I do think about things we've seen here in the New York City area around mm-hmm. measles and, and those sorts of things where if there's a group of people who just opts out, that has a, a pretty profound societal effect. You've put your finger right on it. This public health intervention is about the community. It's not necessarily just about individual health. So if I get vaccinated, yes, I will get some modicum of protection against disease. But that protection in my body will actually help protect the people around me because I then am not communicating or transmitting the virus. So it's it's a win-win situation. Um, and, yes, so we have had recent instances in, in the U.S. Uh, uh, present where there are sectors of society who are opting out of vaccine, harming themselves but also potentially harming the larger community. So it's not just about the anti-vax community. I think what's really interesting in what you're getting into, Monica, is something – you know, we all have, Jason and I certainly have been talking about a lot since the virus began and certainly since what happened in Minneapolis, just about the inequalities in our world. And I do wonder right. about access. And, and I do wonder, too, you know, the responsibility of kind of our government and all this, especially when some of the vaccine makers or, you know, the big farmer that's racing on getting to, uh, um, working on racing to get a vaccine are saying, we're going to offer it pretty inexpensively like you do wonder how do you make this so that everybody easily has access to it do you make it free essentially to protect society and protect people everybody that's an excellent question uh the judgment of our working group is there there should be no cost associated with accessing this vaccine um and that will remove one of the biggest hurdles for people to to get it. It's not the only hurdle, but it's an important one. And I think not only is it about the economics, it's also about the sense that our government is investing our money in our well-being. We, you know, these are public dollars. uh, And so we would derive benefits. All right. Well, this is, I hope, the first of several conversations we have about this. This is critically important, and we really appreciate it, and especially as we get closer to a vaccine. What the government does, what private institutions do, uh, like yours, is going to be critical to us all getting back to some semblance of normal and staying healthy, Carol. Right. And this idea of access, that everybody can yeah. equally access it, this is really important. Um, and this could be very divisive in our society, again, if we don't get this right. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. An interview earlier with one of our experts at Johns Hopkins talking about antibodies. Let's go a little bit deeper on that with Michelle Cortez, senior health and science reporter for Bloomberg. She has been doing just an incredible job covering this, as she always does, uh, really finding her moment as a journalist, I feel like, here, uh, Carol. And if you're not reading her, you're missing out, and you're not fully understanding what's going on out there. Michelle joins us on the phone from Minneapolis. So, Michelle, antibodies, we all want them, um, but maybe some news that they're not quite as great or they don't last quite as long as we had hoped. 
Right. Well, just like everything else with this coronavirus infection, we're learning so many new things about the way our bodies react to pathogens and what that means. And one of the things that researchers are finding now is that the antibodies that we make, the ones that basically prime our immune system to fight off future infections, might not stick around as long as we had hoped for to keep this coronavirus in check. And that's a, a little bit worrisome from the vaccine and herd immunity perspective. Right. I mean, when we keep thinking about the ways we hope to get ahead of this, herd immunity was one of those, I kind of feel like, Michelle, an important aspect of it. Right. Well, herd immunity is this idea that once you've been in, once you've seen this virus, Mm -hmm. once you've been infected yourself or you've gotten an immunization, then you're no longer a repository for it. You can't pass it along. You're basically like the free kid in tag, right? So you're not going to go get anyone else. So you're good to go. The idea that those that free space only lasts for maybe three months or six months or less than a year, that's what this, the, these study results are suggesting. And of course, again, very early, what they found was that the antibodies have a half-life. That means they're about half gone after 72 days on average. It was a very small study, just 34 patients. But um, that that would suggest that certainly you're not going to have a lifelong immunity from this coronavirus infection. And maybe it wouldn't get us along far enough to protect everybody in order to get the virus under control more broadly. So, Michelle, I feel like even those of us like Carol and myself who are watching this fairly closely, we're not watching it nearly as closely as you are. And I think we all can get a little distracted, you know, like a dog with a bunch of squirrels running around like, what, 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 you know, in terms of like what is new and trending. Break this down for us. Like what are the as you think about the last couple weeks, what are the most important medical developments that we should really be paying attention to? Right. Well, The most important things that have come in the last week or two, honestly, are the advances in the vaccine initiative. And the point there is that it has been largely phenomenal. The the pace at which the vaccine development is happening has never been seen before in science across almost anything. When I first started getting into this business, the work was around HIV and AIDS. And my God, it was depressing for years. In this particular case, the virus itself hasn't even been around for one year, right? We're looking at about seven, eight months now. And the fact that they have a vaccine that is producing antibodies, again, the part of your immune system that fights off infection is really astonishing. I have to All say, Mr. Mich- oh, go ahead. No, no, no. No, you finish. You, you finish, please. I was just going to say it's it's all still so, so early. The fact that we haven't been, that nothing has come up to say, oh, this is a, you know, it's not only a black diamond, like they're all going down black diamonds, but nobody's gone off a cliff on any of these yet is astonishing. I think people need to remember that that will happen. And when that happens, everyone will panic. But there's a lot of efforts underway. And uh, when the bad news comes, as it will, don't freak out. But the fact that it hasn't come yet is astonishing. I do have to say, I read your story and I got a little bummed because I feel like until we get a vaccine, we're kind of stuck, right? Until we get a vaccine, we're kind of stuck, yes. And then what my story is suggesting, worrisomely, is that even a vaccine might not be what everyone yeah, thinks it is, right? It's not the panacea. Kind of thinking, yeah, that a vaccine is everyone's get out of jail free card and, and maybe not. But again, early days, but yeah. you know, don't count on it. 
Have a All great right. Thursday, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. Get out there. Don't don't be worried, but worry a little bit. All right, Michelle Cortez, thank you so much. Senior health and science reporter for Bloomberg. Her work, just astonishing on this. So uh, follow her at Faye Cortez uh, to check out her latest stories. On it Twitter. is unbelievable, right? She gets into the weeds and really makes us so much smarter in terms of understanding what's going on. And I, and I do think, you know, my message always with her is this is so tricky and we keep learning things every day and that's why it makes it so difficult. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, you know, we talk about the go-to writers and the folks that you really want to yes. follow on certain uh, topics. Lauren Etter certainly falls into that category and her work that she and some of our colleagues have done on Jewel has just been riveting and must read for sure. Uh, Lauren is a projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles, along with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. So, Joel, fair to say this has been uh, sometimes sort of hard to read series of stories because of all the candidly like malfeasance and twists and turns, uh, this one is no exception. Yeah, and and I think the thing about the story um, uh, and Jewel is h- how much we we still kind of are waiting to figure out where the FDA is going to come down on Jewel. And but what Lauren really was able to dig in here, and from the moment that I've heard her talk about this story, I've just been like utterly like so excited to like publish it. Um, it is really uh, something about um, the product timeline, and there's big insights into Jewel that she sort of uncovered along the way. But the main critical thing that she's un- really unearthed here was that the the product um, it became very popular very quickly, but there were there were some subtle changes that got made along the way that maybe didn't have FDA sanctioning. And when that happened, um, now after the fact, the FDA is it will will start to decide what the company's fate is for those decisions. Um, and and Lauren, like take a take us through what you learned and and the significance of it. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, it's, a, it's fascinating, really, to follow the company and uh, follow their meteoric rise. Really, um, they're one of the fastest growing uh, companies in Silicon Valley. And really uh, followed the Silicon Valley playbook, which is move fast and break things. So as they're growing um, from the very beginning, they're up against huge competitors from the tobacco industry. And it's really a race to the top, essentially. And as Juul releases its product, they realize that there are some major problems with the design and functioning of it. The pods are leaking the nicotine into people's mouths, and they were also leaking into the device itself, which was causing it to essentially break. So that was a huge problem for this startup that was trying to compete in a really rough-and-tumble marketplace. And normally, under normal circumstances, a company would just fix it and move right on. But the challenge here was that the FDA was scrambling to really get a hold of this new and, and rapidly growing e-cigarette market. So they basically said, look, we're going to freeze the market. No co- companies that are currently selling their products can continue to sell them, but you cannot make any changes or modifications to that product. Otherwise, that would be a new product and you would not be allowed in the market. So basically, Juul was faced with the problem. Do they go ahead and fix their product that was actually breaking or do they abide by the FDA's rules? And they were um, had so much venture capital backing. They had their backs up against the wall. They ended up making these changes to essentially fix the product and 
consumers never would have known, but it was something that ended up being uh, kind of a closely held secret within the company that they made these changes and it really helped their product become the number one uh, cigarette and uh, selling cigarette in the entire world. So they did what they kind of should have done, right, Lauren, is they fixed the product. There was a flaw. But in doing so, they have potentially or will get themselves in trouble with regulators, bottom line. Right. So this is going to be the million-dollar question, how the FDA is going to treat this information. So right now, the future of Juul literally rests in the hands of the FDA because every e-cigarette company, including Juul, is now having to apply to the agency to get the agency's authorization to allow them to continue selling their products. So already the FDA is heavily scrutinizing Juul and, um, you know, the FDA has been digging around Juul for a very long time trying to figure out, did they do something wrong? Did they modify their product illegally? Did they, you know, did they do something they weren't supposed to do, uh, which led to this 5 million kids being addicted to, to e-cigarettes? And so the fact that, the, that this never surfaced and now the FDA is presented with this information, it's going to be a big question whether or not. Uh, how they will treat that information. But it's safe to say that it's potentially damaging to the company in the sense that their fate rests in the hands of the FDA right now. So, Lauren, um, what could uh, the FDA decide to do? And also, let's keep in mind here and, and give, give us a sense of all the other government agencies that are also interested in Juul right. and e-cigarettes. Right. So basically, under the law, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, it said that e-cigarette companies or tobacco products that are regulated by this law were not allowed to modify the product. And if they did modify their product, it would render it a new tobacco product. And if that, if they didn't have authorization to be selling that new tobacco product, that meant that their product was essentially on the market without authorization and could be subject to removal. So technically, I mean, Juul will have all kinds of defenses and arguments to this. So it's, it's, it's not clear that the FDA has a clear pathway here. But in theory, the FDA potentially has the authority to remove the product from the market. It's unclear whether or not they would take that drastic action. So that's one piece of it. Yes. And you mentioned the other regulators. Yes, there are multiple government agencies that are, have been and are investigating Juul, including the Federal Trade Commission. That agency is looking at whether or not the deal, the humongous deal that Juul did with Altria was anti-competitive. Um, the Department of Justice is probing Juul. Um, I discovered this in my reporting that the company, um, that the, uh, sorry, the um, federal prosecutors in San Francisco are looking at, among other things, whether or not Juul was truthful with with um, uh, federal agents, including the FDA, in its correspondence and uh, communications. Um, and the Securities and Exchange Commission is very interested in, as well um, uh, in the types of communications that the company um, made to investors and whether or not it was forthcoming uh, on that front, too. So, yeah, there's a lot of interest in the company. There's a lot at stake. Uh, Juul, I think the most important thing to remember is that Juul essentially has a single product. This is right. a company that does not have a big basket of products, has one product, and if they do not get the FDA's author, um, authorization to move forward, they're kind of they're left without any product to sell. But they could, Lauren. We've just got about 40 seconds left here. I mean, they could say, listen, this was a safety issue. Ultimately, the company did the right thing. There are various arguments that the company could make, including that, um, and that's certainly one that I'm sure that they will, be, uh, will att attempt to make, absolutely. There are definitely defenses that the company has that they'll put forward, um, no doubt.
All right. Lauren Etter, terrific reporting on Jewel. You've been following the story so closely. And, and I should note, not to spoil the end of the story, but you have a nice, uh, nice sort of wrap at the end where you talk about how the company has moved from San Francisco, as you said, following the Silicon Valley playbook, now to Washington, D.C., its headquarters there, because this is where the fight is in many ways. <laughs> so uh, an interesting sort yeah. of emblem of where the company is. Lauren Etter joining us from Los Angeles. Our thanks to her as well as to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Yeah, and check out the new issue on newsstands, on uh, the Bloomberg terminal, and of course at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, it's time for the drive to the close. With us is Deepak Puri, Chief Investment Officer of Americas at uh, Deutsche Bank Wealth Management, joining us on the phone in New York City. Uh, Deepak, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Uh, you know, an interesting day, interesting couple of weeks. We're starting to get earnings. How do you see the market environment right now? Uh, thank you, Carol. Uh, interesting is, is a very benign word, I, and I agree. It's been interesting, but mostly surreal for me this entire year, to be honest. Um, I, I think the volatility, even though it has come down quite dramatically from the March uh, highs, it's still elevated, and I think that's going to continue as we enter the really the, the last stretch of, of a general election year. So, uh, you know, if this was a, a normal year, uh, the the higher volatility time would be in front of us because that's what usually happens. You know, right after Labor Day, September, October tends to be really volatile before the presidential election. Given the kind of year we have had, uh, it seems to be a little bit lower at this point. But I think from now on, the sort of the initial bounce that we have seen in the economy is going to start to stall, and uh, that's going to create a whole host of issues for investors. So. It's, uh, I, I, I'm suggesting at least my clients to still uh, be bracing for a, a highly charged up environment and markets as we enter the, the final leg of this calendar year. And so, Deepak, we're obviously in the midst of earnings, so we don't have a full read yet. But so far, what do you make of these second quarter reports? Because they were eagerly awaited, both in terms of the numbers, but also in terms of the commentary and the guidance. What's your feel so far? Uh, Jason, I think the, the markets are looking past the second quarter earnings. I think we were all expecting the second quarter earnings to be the bottom uh, for the year, you know, where the expectations were so low. So I would not be surprised if, if at the end of the quarter we end up getting sort of 60 to 65 percent beats on the EPS and, you know, a little bit lower on the revenue side. I think the markets are looking beyond maybe, yes, what kind of guidance companies are going to give. And even there, you know, uh, 30 to 35 percent of the companies are actually not providing any specific guidance related to COVID. How COVID is going to impact their bottom line or their revenue, uh, it's, it's still foggy for them. And hence, it becomes a little bit uh, difficult for 
folks like myself to even gauge, you know, what the trajectory of the earnings is going to be as we enter the second half of the year and beyond. Having said that, I think so far it's been a mixed bag, um, you know, especially with the with banks behind us, uh, which I think are much better prepared this time around than the uh, GFC. And even some of the tech names that have started to show, I think you can see that the revenue, uh, you know, impact hasn't been that severe. And what I think what's going to happen is that the post-COVID recovery is going to be really dependent on technology, you know, rebuilding of the healthcare system, and it's going to be a green recovery. You know, a lot of talk about the infrastructure and sustainability. Mm-hmm. So I think these three sort of mega trends are going to, you know, exacerbate uh, in, a, in a post-COVID environment. That was interesting. You said tech, you said green, and what was the other one? Healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah, and I do feel like healthcare has been a system, you know, often in times of stress, right? That's when we start to figure out better ways to do some do things because we have to. And I, I see it even as I slowly make my way back to the healthcare sector for routine things that I feel like it's become a much more efficient place because they have to be. Exactly right. And, and I think it, um, you know, if there is a lesson learned from the COVID epidemic, it is that how sort of dysfunctional everything has been. Um, I think we are a little bit behind as a country compared to other countries in, in their way of handling. Um, there was not, even though we were ranked number one in that John Hopkins very often quoted report, we didn't really, you know, uh, at least from what I can see as of today, uh, end up being a number one, you know, in terms of our infection rate, mortality, the kind of strain our healthcare system had to go through. You know, I, I think a lot needs to be done. We spend uh, $4 trillion plus from one think tank study that I read. And it doesn't feel like with all that spending that the, uh, the output has been uh, that efficient. So to your point, I think uh, this might give us a pause to reflect and maybe become a bit more efficient going forward and actually use technology a lot more. Mm. So Deepak, before we let you go, just have to ask you about sort of the the one-two punch that we've seen across the early part or the the so far, maybe it's not early, the so far of this pandemic in terms of fiscal and monetary response. All eyes are on Washington now for the fiscal side. Where do you look to as an investor now for essentially relief and rescue? Is it all fiscal at this point? No, I, I don't think you can rule out monetary uh, policy uh, completely, uh, you know, even though I think the Fed uh, getting close to the election is probably done a lot more in the front end. So the first half of the year is really where they came out with the big, uh, more aggressive policy actions. That doesn't mean that they cannot do something if need mm. be. Keep in mind, we have two FOMC meetings from now till the election date and three unemployment reports. So I don't think we have enough data points now to substantially alter the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the take that the Fed has made. I think on the fiscal side, a lot has been done, and that has been one of the, the, uh, you know, the silver lining. Uh, But a lot really needs to be done. Uh, As we have said and other commentators have said, you know, the recovery is stalling. And uh, for us, this is going to be a, a steep recession and a somewhat of a muted uh, recovery. And for us to gain that speed uh, where we really have that escape velocity to go back to a pre-COVID level of economic activity and uh, labor market conditions, a lot needs to be done on the fiscal side. Um, And I think uh, for the time being, at least the debt overhang uh, discussion should be left 
for subsequent years because right now the, yeah. the bigger problem is whether you're going to have you know, a GDP rather than the, the concern with regards to debt to GDP. Right. You've got to rebuild that economy so you have an economy to come back to. Um, Deepak, always thoughtful. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, Deepak Puri, Chief Investment Officer Americas at Deutsche Bank Wealth Management, joining us on the phone uh, from New York City. And I feel like he is mirroring, Jason, how we kind of kicked off that you rightfully pointing out that the jobless claims today you know, reminding us that things are not getting better and maybe getting worse. And there are concerns, as he said, you know, things starting to stall out. And depending on what we get from Washington, you know, we still need relief to make sure that there is still essentially an economy to come back to. Exactly. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.